Hello and welcome to episode 8 of the A Word of Good podcast. My guest today is Eric Porter, Head of Workplace and Community Programs and Acting Chief Executive of the Money Charity. Eric has experience working within operations, governance and debt collections in global retail banks. Originally from the United States, Eric has lived in Germany, the United Arab Emirates, Russia and now the UK and he has had the opportunity to work in over 40 countries during his career. He's also worked with charities including Citizens Advice and Southwark Food Bank. In addition to his work, Eric is a trustee of Fair Money Advice, an East London debt advice charity. Eric enjoys helping organisations understand how financial capability can improve their products and services while also supporting the well-being of their clients and employees. The Money Charity is the UK's leading financial capability charity. They believe that being on top of your money means you are more control of your life, your finances and your debts, reducing stress and hardship, and that being on top of your money increases your well-being, helps you to achieve your goals and live a happier and more positive life as a result. The Money Charity has a long history of helping people to manage their money well. Past work has included targeted help for those leaving prison, the homeless, working through faith groups, as well as providing mainstream information and advice face-to-face and in printed or digital form. Today, the Money Charity is the leading national financial capability charity, providing financial education, information and advice to young people and adults throughout the UK. I'm delighted to have with me Eric Porter. Hi, Eric. Thank you very much for joining us on the Word of Good podcast. How are you today? I'm all right, and thanks for uh, inviting me to join you. Excellent. So we've got uh, a lot of things I think we could probably cover today. I know you and I could probably talk about this stuff for a lot longer than kind of 25 minutes. Um, so let's just uh, jump straight into it. So you're obviously um, CEO of the Money Charity. The Money Charity does an incredible amount of research that I've used regularly in my work around workplace financial well-being. But what are you seeing are the biggest issues facing people in the UK when it comes to their money? Yeah, well, great to hear you're, you're a, a reader of our money statistics. Um, so yeah, we do quite a bit of research. We, we put out the monthly money stats, um, which cover a bunch of things. And I guess the two areas that are really appearing for us that, that the statistics would cover and show is, is debt, and that won't be surprising to most people. But actually, it's not the um, 25,000 or 40,000 pounds worth of debt on credit cards that people might think when they hear the word debt. Um, it's often that the kind of a casual debt, you know, people dipping in and out of overdrafts or being caught in an overdraft cycle. So it, it's using credit to fund everyday spend or essential spending, which is uh, somewhat worrying. So that's one. And the other is around pension contributions, that they're just too low. And even with auto enrollment and all of the work that's been done to, to increase and promote pensions, that uh, people just are not saving enough today and the third one which you wouldn't see in the stats but really worries us is how people are overwhelmed by just the volume of and complexity of products that are out there so whether that's being able to sort through price comparison websites or understanding the basic terms and conditions of any of their products um, people disengage very quickly when they're when they're looking for new products because of that complexity and, and volume of information so they don't know where to turn it's, it's really interesting so i think you know with all the work i've been doing with workplace financial well-being you know any of our listeners if they kind of 
went onto Google now and they Googled financial well-being, most of the first page, if not most of all the results on the first page, uh, heavy focused on debt. Um, mm-hmm. And obviously you'll see all the research about kind of your know, household debt is obviously increasing and all that kind of stuff. So it's really here. It's really interesting to hear you talk about this casual debt. Um, I know on Paul Lewis's money show a few weeks ago, he was talking about overdraft charges and they spoke to a few members of the public who actually explained that actually they they carry this kind of random debt that ends up sitting on their overdraft for a month or two, then disappears for a month or two, and then comes back because the kids are going on a school trip and it's an unplanned expense. Um, and the guests he had on the show were talking about actually, do people think about that overdraft facility in the same way that they do a loan? And obviously the way the FCA is now changed or in the process of getting some of the banks to change those processes so that these fees, overdraft fees, are considered more like APRs. They were actually mm-hmm. talking to this um, this lady who the flat fee meant that her bank had increased her overdraft charge to about 19%, so it almost doubled. And they were talking to her about, you know, actually, has she looked at things like credit cards to carry that balance? Because if she's only carrying £200 for a month and then paying that off, the 6% APR, I think they mentioned on a Sainsbury's credit card at the time, was obviously a lot better than the 19% on her overdraft. And it just hadn't considered, you know, it hadn't come into these people's minds at all. And, and that with a few of the guests they've spoken to, they were all carrying this very kind of, as you said, it's a good, good phrase, casual debt that kind of appeared and disappeared. Um, they didn't really think about it as serious debt, but they were talking about how if they carried that for a month or more, they'd start to get worried about it if it kind of spread over two payments. So I think that's quite interesting. Yeah. It's also one of those areas when, when we're working with people, um, you know, in, in the workplace, you, you often get conversations and questions around, you know, high cost credit. So the Wongas of the world, you know, which of course are no longer with us, but um, things like that. And I often remind them that long before there was a Wonga, there was an overdraft line and there were, you know, arranged and unarranged overdrafts. And if they did the maths, they, they'd come up to a very alarming uh, interest rate. So, it, you know, well, we welcome all the work that people like the FCA are doing to regulate um, both sectors, um, it's good that they finally realised that it's time to admit there was a problem in the overdraft market. And I think that it, it plays as well, based on some of the things I've read and researched and obviously that the podcast I just mentioned. You talk about people being overwhelmed by the complexity of products. It was obvious that the callers that they received weren't able to distinguish kind of or work out the differences pretty quickly between, you know, if I had £200 as an overdraft at 19%, APR, thinking about that in the same way they think about a loan, you know, it, what used to happen is obviously your charge would be, you know, six pounds a week, or whatever the figure was for your overdraft facility. And people weren't able to really then think about, okay, what would that be in an APR and probably work out that their overdraft wasn't actually a cheap way of lending money if that's what they needed to do. Yeah, it's, it's also one of the questions I ask often in, in workshops is, you know, where do you turn when you need information? And inevitably people will say, well, I go to, you know, this product compar- price comparison website or this one. And I say, right, okay, and what do you do there? And they'll tell you, they'll go through all of the information, but they, they are often none the wiser when they leave. Or the other group of people will say, I turn on the telly and watch someone like Martin Lewis. It's okay, tell me one thing that you remember from your last episode of his um, TV show, and then they kind of blankly stare at me. Interesting, and that's. And, and I say, did you take anything away? And then they say, well, I'm sure I learned something. And then we get to the conclusion that actually, it, it's kind of like sitting there with someone with an assault rifle pointed at you, you know, for 30 minutes, just shooting information down the telly. 
And again, being overwhelmed by, well, is that pertinent to me? How do I actually execute on that information? People find it really challenging. And the complexity of products, I think, is, is fascinating from a workplace point of view. And this relates to obviously what you said about low pension contributions as well is in a workplace context, um, there are lots of financial products offered, you know, group risk products, pensions, etc. Um, some of them, you know, obviously pretty big um, financial um, products. Um, and your know, pensions is a great example of the one that employers have thrown a huge amount of effort, resource, time, money at making people understand what your pension is, how much we're contributing, how much you're contributing, um, partly because some clients obviously or wants to show that they're doing some really good stuff around the pension so they might have really high employer contributions um and so that's been happening for kind of just before audit enrollment and right the way through and obviously since the changes in april last year yet when i look at your statistics of the money charity from kind of december last year um 70 percent of people still don't understand their pensions yeah and and i think that's so people understand the theory, right? So I should put money into a pension that that's been drilled into them. And now, you know, 8% of, of their salaries going in there, right? 5% from them, 3% from the employer at a minimum. So, so they understand, assuming they've bothered to look at their pay slip and see that money going out each month, they know it's there, but you know, at the end of the day, pensions are just really boring, right, for most people. And they're not easy to engage with because often the provider's websites aren't very engaging or maybe they only get an annual statement. And then when you do get into them and they start to say, well, where's my money gone? How is it growing? That, you know, for most people with an average level of financial capability, that's a lot of information to take on. And so it's, well, I'll just ignore it. and I'll deal with it when I get to, you know, age 54 which unfortunately for a lot of people will, will be too late. And I think it's, it's, it, it's fascinating. One of the things that I've found quite a lot over the last, um, uh, the last couple of years, and this relates to kind of the next point I wanna, wanted to discuss with you, is, you know, pensions is complex. You know, the, um, in one of the previous podcasts, we spoke to Henry Tapper, one of the UK pensions experts, and we were talking about how actually this, the chief economist at the Bank of England admitted that he doesn't understand his own pensions. And so we're kind of like, OK, so if we're working, if employers have people who are straight out of university or straight into work, working at kind of uh, you know, a checkout in Tesco's or a call centre operation, that kind of stuff. You know, how do we get those people to fully understand pensions when, you know, people so high up in the Bank of England are admitting they don't understand their own pension? Um mm -hmm. And frequently, one of the things that kind of gets brought to me is, you know, we should be talking about pensions in schools. And you know, my standard response is, we find it really difficult to get a 35-year-old engaged in pensions. I don't know yeah. how we're going to get a 12-year-old to start thinking about their retirement because it just feels so far away, doesn't it? It's kind of a different land. It's a different world. It's a future we don't even know is going to happen for us. Yeah, it does. And, and it's... Um... It is something actually when we're working in schools, we, we do mention pensions and we talk about them um, you know, at a very high level. I actually find it more helpful when we're talking to people to talk about savings and pensions are an aspect of savings. So if you lead with pensions, then again, it's, it's scary, it's complex. But the concept of savings, whether that's, you know, rounding up to the nearest pound, you know, every time you use your debit card or one of these other tools that exist, um, people do get that. And so if you start to talk about savings and the different types that you have and their purposes and how do you free up money in your budget to allow you to save, um, it, it gets a bit easier. And I think that's, that, that certainly came out in the conversation we had with Henry was around 
you know, we talk about investments and you talk about short term and kind of midterm investments. And actually, that's all a pension is, right? Pension is a long term investment. And so if it stops, it starts being considered exactly as you said, an investment or a savings account um, for the long term, then all of a sudden that starts to become a little bit more acceptable because it's you start to think about it in the same way you think about your other savings and and how interest is accrued and you start thinking about things like compound interest and how that works and it stops becoming this boring product that a 50 year old white man tries to sell us every time i'm employed as a workplace workshop or something absolutely yeah um so that leads quite nicely on to as i mentioned um, one of the most frequent objections i get around workplace financial well-being is that so many people believe it should be taught in school um that this is a kind of government or public health problem that the government should be solving I know you guys at the Money Charity do a lot of work with schools and students, and I've taken part in some of your exercises. So the one about how to divide a £20 note up into living costs and how much money you've got left. Um, yeah, yeah. Great little exercise. So that was really interesting and fun. Um, and your research found that the government's decision to make financial education a compulsory part of the national curriculum from September 2014 didn't lead to the leap forward that you and other people had hoped for. And so it doesn't really leave many options for people so is the workplace kind of the next best place to get this kind of support um i think the answer is yes but i want to unpick that a little bit i think you know if i look at our work so we've been going for you know this is our 25th year um you know since 2010 we've seen about 200,000 kids in, in secondary schools around the country um and and so we definitely know, you know, 20,000 is, is barely making a dent in the number of kids that are in school. Um, and there are a lot of really valid reasons why it's not being taught in school. A lot of that to do with timetable pressure and teacher confidence. Some of those we can solve and we actively try to solve, like teacher confidence. Um, we have some, some uh, tools and resources for them. But everybody's solution for every problem anymore is put it on the curriculum. And unfortunately, if we want our kids to have, you know, five minutes of spare time per year, um, we can't do that. Um, so, so, yeah, the next best place, well, there, there are two next best places. And the first one is in the community. So, you know, t reaching young people in the community um, is possible, whether that's through scout groups or sports teams. You know, there are kids that gather for other reasons. So I think we should be focusing on that area. Um, and then absolutely the workplace is, is the next best place. Um, and that's true because most of us that are now, you know, of working age came out of a school system where financial education didn't exist at all. Um, so we have ground to make up. But, you know, given what I've just said, we're going to be in that position for, for quite some time. So getting employers to think about their responsibility, but as well as the opportunity that they're sitting on. And actually, so many employers are already doing a great job um, with, with the, the benefits that they offer um, to employees. And they often don't think about what they're doing as contributing to financial well-being or, or financial wellness. And actually, you know, the first step for an employer, I say, is, well, look at what you're already doing. And, and they'll probably uncover two or three things that are contributing to financial well-being in there, including their pension scheme, right? That's the obvious one. But there's, you know, often people are offering discounts on different things or access to different types of advice or, um, you know, cycle hire schemes and then, you know, all of those types of things. So there's a lot of financial well-being supportive benefits um, that are there. And I think that's a really good point, actually. I think, you know, people talk a lot about the benefits that they offer because most company funded benefits like pensions 
um, tend to be focused on finances or health. So you kind of have your health cash plans, private medical, that kind of stuff. So um, it very rarely, really, are they kind of brought into the conversation around financial well-being when I think you're absolutely right. They should be. So you know, one of the, the great kind of unsung heroes of employee benefits, I believe, is income protection. So income protection is obviously a product that helps people avoid a poor financial situation in the future. Um, and if you kind of look at how income protection works, you know, statistically, one in two people will experience cancer in their lifetime. You know, one in three or four of us will have a, a mental health condition during our lifetime. And an income protection policy kicks in whilst you're away from work with any of those two conditions. And actually, when you look at the research from the provider Unum from last year, mental health conditions were now the most popular thing that they were paying out on. Um, and according to the Association of British Insurers in this country, the income protection payout rates are now the highest of pretty much any insurance in the in the country. So the payout rates are something like 97.9%. So you're pretty much 100% guaranteed that a, a claim that you'll make under income protection will actually pay out. So it becomes a really realistic benefit. Um, but massively, massively misunderstood. Um, you know, as a consumer product, income protection hardly exists. It's kind of almost always delivered in the corporate space. And in this country, I think there's about 18,000 policies, something like that. So actually, comparatively, not a really big product, but one that's hugely misunderstood, mostly delivered in the workplace. Um, and it's kind of related, I guess, to, to the earlier point around it's just seen as quite a complex product to try and understand. And the research, I think, from the US says that about 90% of people think it's a benefit that you take out when you become ill, not one that kind yeah. of ensures you against becoming ill. Um, so yeah, think... that's one that comes up in, in our work. So inevitably, there will be a person in a workshop who's you know received some financial advice or, or maybe worked for an employer that provided it. And I think uh, in addition to just being a complex product, if the person is responsible for paying all or part of you know the monthly premium for that product, um, it's quite expensive on the face of it. So I think that's scary for people. Um, and people are also um, a, a bit caught out by the, the whole optimism bias, right? Where they think, well, it's not going to happen to me. Um, just like they also think they're going to marry rich or win the lottery. Um, so, so it's, you know, I don't need that. And actually, I think this is a great area where an employer just take that decision out of the employee's hands and offer that. I think it would be much more beneficial to offer income protection to your staff as a benefit and pay all or part of it than some of the other things that I see employers doing. Yeah, completely agree. I think if you kind of, if people started to reframe the benefits offering around actually, rather than delivering the kind of nice to have stuff, I'm delivering the things that will really have an impact on people's lives um, should the worst happen. Um, you know, I think because it's really interesting. I was reading um, recently Step Change's latest report, and they were talking about actually most people fall into a poor, a, a really poor financial position or position of debt because of a life event that is quite predictable. So, falling ill, divorce, kind of death of a spouse or death of a parent, um, having a child. You know, those kind of big life events that happen to most people at some point. Um, and actually about kind of making sure people are prepared for the fact that, you know, something will happen that will knock you back. You know, we can't stop those waves of life. You know, things will happen, unexpected bills and unexpected pressure will appear. So actually doing well, you know, while the kind of going's good now, making those decisions for your future self 
um, mm -hmm. is something that obviously employers can have a big impact on. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And in fact, in my, my former life, before working for the money charity, you know, I used to, to run debt collections for, for Barclays. And we actually did a, a, you know, a proper market research review um, where we you know, went and recruited people from, from the community and watched them behind the glass in a facilitated conversation around you know, when did they go into arrears and when did it become a problem. And, and I want to say we saw about 20, 25 people and every one of them could sit up there and draw the, the journey map on a flip chart and pinpoint the day where, you know, for lack of a better term, that you know, the wheels fell off the wagon, that where it all you know, turned bad. And that was pretty enlightening, you know, because you often think, oh, it's just people uh, overspending or just having low levels of financial capability or not understanding what they're doing. In fact, it's almost always a life event. Now, some some tools and you know a better savings and, and being more prepared and being more resilient when that life event happens because we're all going to have them is the part that we're trying to solve through financial capability but yeah it, it's very clear that there was always some event um, and that leads quite nicely on to the next point i want to discuss with you um the money charity recently published an article called talking money how can we tackle the very british problem um, in the article, Money Charity talks about how advances in politics and mental health have come from people opening up and talking more and how this openness has made people more involved in politics and has gone a long way to removing the stigma attached to mental health. And we've obviously seen that, especially in the workplace. Um, when we talk and I speak to our customers and uh, I speak to clients and employers around developing workplace well-being strategies, we focus quite a lot on creating a culture of wellness. Um, do you think organizations can tackle some of these financial well-being issues in part by just talking about money more? Absolutely. So I think they, um, you know, when, when I talk to people and I say, well, when's the last time you talked about money? And if anyone's ever talked about it with their colleagues or their employer, then it's usually, oh, well, you know, I was bragging last week because I got a great deal on a flight to somewhere. I got a great deal on this. And that's the end of the money conversation. Um, so, so employers have a few things that they can do. First of all, you know, the stigma and shame around money, of course, starts with us very young and you know, at a very young age where we're told not to ask people how much they earn and where, you know, we don't talk about how much did your house cost and this and that and the other, even though we're all checking the, the land registry to see how much the neighbor's house just sold for. But, um, so, so absolutely we've got to fix those, but in the workplace, we continue to perpetuate that by saying, well, don't talk to people about your salary or don't talk to people about your increase or all of those things. So we keep making people feel ashamed about talking about money or creating levels of inequality. So, so employers um, can look around how they're managing those conversations. And then absolutely, if you take some of the learning from mental health, and in fact, we were with a client last week who's done exactly this, um, they have mental health buddies um, you know, that, that have been trained in mental health awareness, mental health first aid, and, and those types of activities, and just really how to have good conversations and listen more than anything. That's the key skill. Um, and then signpost. And they made a decision to do the exact same thing about money. And so we went in and spent a day with them training their buddies to use all of those great skills they picked up through mental health and do the exact same thing for money. Because actually the skills are almost the same when it comes to listening. What's different is the signposting. Um, of course, sending people to a different set of you know potential providers or support uh, services. And also the, the slight difference here is 
understanding the difference between advice and guidance. And actually, I think that's the place where most employers shy away from this financial topic is because they say, oh, I can't be seen as being in advice and, you know, hands off. And actually, you know, the definition of a, you know, money guidance practitioner is very wide. Um, you know, it's literally anybody who's supporting anyone else with a money issue. And that's already recognized by people like, you know, the FCA and, you know, the Money and Pension Service. So as long as people understand, you know, what you cannot do is say, oh, you've got £10,000 worth of debt. I think you should do this, this and this. That is regulated advice. But signposting a person to say, okay, well, why don't you, you know, make a list of all of your debts and then you know, figure, write down the interest rates that you're paying on each of those. And now um, you go to this website and it will you know, give you a debt calculator or help you, you know, go to Step Change's website, use some of their tools or, or whatever you might do. That's not advice. That's guidance. Um, so employers don't need to be as fearful about crossing that boundary as I think they are. I think that's a really valid point. It's certainly one of the objections I get most is, you know, are we being too paternalistic? Um, you, know, uh, you know, somebody said to me, well, somebody wrote in an article actually in a HR magazine um, late last year that they felt like, you know, we are running businesses, not charities, and we don't make sure that our employees clean their teeth. So why are we making sure that they save enough money? Um, thankfully, I think that kind of thinking is pretty outdated for most people. But we're still here in the workplace you know, I think there was there was YouGov research last year that said eight out of ten HR decision makers don't know the difference between regulated financial advice and just giving financial signposting or education, and and that fear of stepping over that line means that most people just don't act, so they don't get involved in helping this problem at all. But I think you're absolutely right. I think just having a conversation about money, which might not even be around giving somebody advice or even signposting them, but just creating this culture where people can come and speak to HR or award teams and say that they're struggling and they need help makes a big difference because the reality is if somebody, you know, for most of the listeners, most of the HR leaders that will be listening to this podcast, if somebody came to you and said, look, I'm kind of 200 pounds down, I'm really struggling to find the money, I've got this bill or whatever that needs to be paid, most employers will find a way of either advancing somebody that money or offering them a hardship loan or an interest-free loan. And I see loads of companies doing this. They don't massively advertise it, but if employees yeah. go to their employers and say, look, I'm struggling, most will want to do the right thing and find a way. And obviously by doing that, you stop that person going to a payday loan or seeking that money elsewhere, which could be the start of quite a significant downfall. You know, some of the, some of the people we've seen in the media where they've kind of you know, within 10 months made some very drastic life decisions and paid the ultimate cost over actually very small amounts of debt that mounted up pretty quickly because the people they loaned that money from uh, are probably not the best sources that they should have. Yeah, I think we should spend a couple of minutes on the whole, you know, the role of the HR professional. And, and, and I think they have a really, really difficult job. Um, one, because... I think sometimes organizations forget that HR professionals are also just employees. And so they have many of the same needs, right? So, you know, the, the managing director who's been to some conference and decides, oh, well, now we need to do financial well-being and says, here, you HR person, go do it um, without appreciating what that means themselves, um, has now given that task to someone who now also needs to go and educate themselves. And to your earlier point, they Google financial well-being and they're just bombarded with with lots of um, offers, many of those offers are, are actually just about debt and loans and those types of things. 
So it's it's difficult for them to unpick it. And then they, of course, want to respect that advice guidance boundary. They want to do the best thing for their employees. Um, and But they also have you know the likes of their pension providers and financial advisors who are constantly pulling on them saying, oh, let me come in and talk to your staff. Let me do this. And actually, those services make it very easy um, for HR professionals. And so therefore, they often go with those, even though they may themselves. And I talk to many of them and say, I'm not really exactly very comfortable that, you know, that we've chosen one single financial advisor to come and meet with all of our people. Um, and actually, I would argue you're probably not delivering, you know, something that's sustainable over the long term. Um, that, that's driving change. And then, of course, yes, they turn to the, the loans and things. So that's the other thing. HR professionals are sitting on heaps of data um, around identifying what those problems are. Um, what most of them probably don't have time or resource to do is to you know unpick that data and really decide, right, well, what's my actual financial strategy plan um, and, or a financial well-being plan and what can I do to, to change these metrics? And I think that's a really valid point and something that I talk about a great deal as well is a lot of this workplace financial well-being, um, you can draw a very clear line between what a provider is doing for you and how they're making money out of employees. And clearly in some cases it will be it will be beneficial to the employees, but I know there was an article in Forbes a couple of months ago, there was a Confessions of a Benefits Manager report in employeebenefits.co.uk, two articles where HR people did some kind of workplace financial well-being and then sat back and realized that all i did was open the door for somebody to come in and sell to my employees and that's a, a paraphrase of the direct quote from employee benefits um so actually people start starting to become a little bit attuned to the fact that you know my pension provider will do some really good stuff for me but you need to balance that with you know what's in it for them and actually if they come in just to kind of get more funds under management then um that's one thing, but obviously just trying to get them to deliver the kind of content that's actually going to resonate with your employees rather than them pushing the agenda is something they can do really easily by just having a conversation with the providers that they work with. Yeah, and I think it's one of the things that's really um, at the forefront of our work. We see it time and time again. You know, as a charity, we're a small charity, so you know, funds and resources are limited. Um, we would like to go and be able to offer you know, our services to HR professionals but the barriers, when you think about what it costs to to have a stand at somewhere like you know an employee benefits live or a Reba conference, or to advertise an employee benefits, which you've actually you know just recently done a campaign um, there. But when when we think about all of those places, they they favor those with the deep pockets, and the deep pockets are rarely impartial. And so HR professionals will they have to want to to do the right thing and work with impartial providers, and they have to want it quite bad to to go and find organizations like ourselves and others that, that can offer that service. Excellent, thank you very much. And so, just as we attempt to wind up now, I'm sure we could talk about this for for hours and hours. We um, could, yes. <laughs> but um, let me just ask you, what is the best financial decision you think you've ever made? That's a tough one. Um, I guess I would have to say that I started contributing to my pension when I was 18. So I was in the States back then, but you know, the, the equivalent of the pension, uh, the 401k. So I started contributing when I was 18 um, and did that through the first 20 years of my working life. Um, and that's really benefited me now because it's actually 
you know, at a time in my life when I actually should probably be thinking about uh, contributing more, um, I feel quite confident in what I've already got saved. And that allows me some freedom to make other decisions like working for a charity. Excellent. And um, so I'm, I'm really interested to ask you a follow up question. <laughs> so you talk then about 401k in the US. Do you think there's anything we could learn about how people talk about and deliver workplace 401ks in the US? Anything we could learn in the UK about that? I would actually say it's not just about 401k. I think it's employee benefits in general. So as an American employee, um, given the state of healthcare and all of the other problems that we have, um, American employers are very, very good about shouting about their benefits package. And it's actually, you know, people will sacrifice a bit of salary to get good health insurance or some other kind of benefit. Um, and so you know, they, the marketing departments are heavily involved with, um, you know, the HR strategies in the U.S. And I think my experience now, having lived in the U.K. for over 10 years, is that British employers are not as good about shouting about their their benefits. They're often there. There's tons of them, um, but they just they, they forget about them, or they give the person the guide or the website on the first day of employment, and that's the end of it. Um, and you know, continuing to try and get people to enroll for different things and take advantage. Um, some of the marketing principles have, have fallen out. And, and I talk about it in our workshops. People's like, you know, actually, you, before you move, you might be moving for a thousand pounds of extra salary. But what's the true cost of that, right? What are you sacrificing in terms of pension contributions or income protection or any of these other benefits? And, and I don't think it's the, at the forefront of the British employee employee's mind today. Excellent. So, um, Thank you very much. I think for anyone listening, go to uh, www.themoneycharity.org.uk. Uh, great resource for HR teams and reward teams. Uh, as you mentioned, great resource for benefit teams, kind of anyone who's managing people to get to understand some of the issues that their employees might be facing. Huge amount of resource. As I mentioned before, I use it an awful lot. You have some really good regular research packs that come out. Um, and even for anyone who's kind of got kids or is a teacher or knows a teacher, there's some really good student packs and resources on that website as well. So um, all that's left for me to say is, Eric, thank you so much. Really valuable insight. Really appreciate you taking the time to come out and speak to us this evening. Well, thank you for having me. It's been great. Thank you. Join the workplace wellbeing discussion online by tweeting your thoughts and questions to at World of Good Book. Thank you to my guests today and thank you for listening.